Well, friends, we're in a series here at Christ Church entitled The Story of Redemption, looking at God's redeeming intervention throughout human history in God's people, Israel. And so in today's passage, we marvelously see David coming in to Jerusalem and his kingdom is being established and he's ushering in a great time of peace, flourishing, prosperity, and national security. And so the tabernacle where God's presence has been now for better part of 400 years since Moses is still out among the people. And David naturally, as a good king would, certainly, in verse 1, utters what a good king should say. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. That seems pretty natural, right? Doesn't it? That he wants to build a temple for the Almighty God. And Nate, what does Nathan do? Well, he does what I would do, probably, if someone walked up to me and said, Hey, Gene, you got... I have $10 million so that you can build a replica of Bruton Parish Church here in Avon Lake, Ohio. I would use the words of Nathan in a heartbeat saying, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it's interesting. Later that night, the Lord comes to Nathan, verse 4, and says, go, go. And tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? And what we see in this passage, my friends, are three phenomenal characteristics and promises of God, not only for David and his family, but for each and every one of us as we walk through these difficult times together. There's three Reasons that he doesn't want David to build the temple. Three points that we see and we can learn from these as we walk in Christ together, albeit six feet apart. The first point is that God is present with his people. See, God believes in incarnational ministry. You see, in verses 6 and 7, he says... I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent from my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to, to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So he's saying to David, Look, David, did I ever ask you to build me a house? I'm the God who lives with my people. When my people wander, I wander. When my people experience, I experience. When my people hurt, I hurt. When my people suffer, I suffer. And still, while you may be in your palace, David, there are those of my people who aren't flourishing, don't have peace, and don't have security. Because David had obviously began to establish 
a place of national security and peace and flourishing. But God is saying, I don't want to live like a king when my people are living without peace and without security. Because my friend, that's who God is. And in this time, we need to really be reminded of that as we're living isolated lives, as we're practicing social distancing, as we're going about our daily lives feeling kind of lonely and not able to do what we really want to do, God is with you. God is present. And we can even flourish in these times. The second point that we see in this passage is that God is the God of free grace. When you look at verse 8, God says to David, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting, isn't it? He says, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says to the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. David, you used to watch sheep. Until I got a hold of you. You followed sheep. And now men and women of my choosing follow you. Why? Because of my grace upon you. David, you're not doing anything for me. You only do things through me. It's by my grace that you have power. My unmerited favor you have success. You will not build me a house, David. I will build you a house. The reason that this is significant is because in the ancient world, it happened all the time when a land would go and conquer another land in the name of their God, they would build their God in this conquered land a temple. So you would hear the priest of that religion, come and say, Oh, King Alexander, Zeus has informed me that you have built him a dwelling place and have exceeded all kings. I will establish your throne forever. And so people would address the conquering king, Oh, king, live forever. We hear this, right? And David is about to do the exact same thing. And God is saying what the average American thinks is wrong. All religions are not like. All religions are not just different ways to worship the same God. God says every other religion works on the principle that you build God a house, then you'll be blessed. And God comes along and says, no, I'm a God of free grace. I build you a house. You don't build me a house. In every other religion, divine blessing is achieved conditionally. But with God, the God who is, divine blessing comes unconditionally to us. And so what God is saying to David is that I am unlike every other of the so, unlike all the other so-called gods, all the other worldviews. And it's all about grace is how you approach me. He's saying, I'll let you, after all your military victories, 
build me a house, not only will you fall into works righteousness, thinking that you did something for me, you'll slip into the belief that I'm like all the other gods out there, and that's what people will think of me, and I can't let that happen. Eugene Peterson says it this way, I think David was just about to cross over a line from being full of God to being full of himself. David, riding the crest of great acclaim, having decisively defeated the opposition, united God's people and captured the allegiance of all Israel. He was heavy with success, and he'd begun to think he could do God a favor. But if David continues to develop along these lines, he will be ruined as a representative of God's kingdom. If any of us, this is great, if any of us develops an identity in which God and God's grace is less important to who we are than our own action and performance, our ability to represent God's kingdom is utterly ruined. For my friends, God is a God of grace. And he's the God who desires to be present with us. So how can he just do that for us imperfect people, us sinful people? The answer is the third point. It's his covenant. You see, David promised to build God a home, and God says no. And God shuts the door on David. That happens to us, right? There's opportunities that happen. We want to do something for God, and he shuts the door. But God always comes back reminding us of his promise, his covenant to us. You will not build me a house. I will build you a house. Matter of fact, I'm going to build you something better than a house because when David is talking to God about a house he's talking about a physical building and when God talks to David about a house he's talking about a kingdom and not just a kingdom the kingdom the everlasting kingdom he's saying in this passage that I promise to make your descendants a dynasty And I will so graciously and unconditionally commit myself to you and the people following you, regardless of how well they perform, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of their pedigree, I will graciously and unconditionally commit myself to them that neither death nor sin nor time will break my covenant with them. Look at verse 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you and who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In other words, death won't stop my covenant to you, David. Not even your sin can stop because he continues in verse 14 I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes and stripes of the sons of men but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away before you these verses 14 and 15 are talking about the imperfection of 
the kings. Just read First and Second Kings. It's a mess. Because so many of them were awful. And God is saying, in spite of that, that will not break my covenant with you. My commitment to carry this through. Death won't stop it. Sin won't stop it. And even time won't stop it. Verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Is that just flowery language? Wishful thinking? Oh, king, may you live forever? No. Remember, this is not a king's court where the king is talking to, a servant talking to a king. This is God talking to a flawed human being. And he even repeats it. Did you notice that? So that we just know he's not just saying blah, blah, blah. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, verse 16. Your throne shall be established forever. God is saying that one of David's descendants will therefore not simply have a kingdom. He will be the kingdom, but have the everlasting kingdom. See, this is the story of redemption that we've been going through throughout this Lenten season. We've seen over the last few weeks that the Bible began in a world of paradise. But when we turned from him, everything fell apart. That's why we have the coronavirus. That's why we have death. That's why we have natural disasters. That's why we have war. That's why we have racism. That's why we get blue. This is why we're unhappy in our hearts. The world is falling apart and David is hearing that one of his descendants will not just be a king, he will be the king. An everlasting king. And we heard the angels speak to Mary today that this kingdom will have no end. And when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, he grows up and works these miracles and does this great teaching, he's not just our savior, he's our king. He literally came and overcame death and was triumphant over death, rose from the dead, overcame sin, died on the cross for us and paid the debt that all the human race owed to his justice. He literally, of course, triumphs over time because he's not just the son of David. He's God incarnate, Jesus Christ. You can just hear Handel's Messiah. I wish we had a choir. King of kings forever and ever and Lord of lords and ever and ever. That's just, I'm going to go home and listen to that this afternoon. The idea that God says, I don't want to be in a house. I want to be in a tent with my people is because he dwells. Jesus came literally poor, literally suffering. He said foxes have holes. Birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So how can he lavish such grace upon us? When every religion says, I build you a house, then God blesses it. But Christianity says, oh no. 
God builds you a house and blesses you on top of it. Every other religion says you give God your blessing. You give God your good record. And Christianity says, no, God gives you his perfect record on your behalf. Through Jesus Christ, who lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died, and he gives you his perfect record through Jesus Christ, and then you live for him. It's absolutely different from every other worldview, absolutely different from every other world religion. God is present in Jesus Christ in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. He empowers us to live this life and offers you the abundant and everlasting life as a gift. And he places you in this kingdom now and forever. So what does this mean for us practically as we go throughout this upcoming week in our homes, working from home? The first thing I want to encourage you is, doesn't this give you hope? It's not just hope for myself individualistically. Yes, it is that. But it's also a hope that I share. It's a corporate hope that we all share together. And that this world is broken and we are called to be a blessing within it. To restore. To make this a place of flourishing. To make this a hope place of abundant life together. A place beyond just individual renewal. Jesus is not just a savior for our individualistic salvation. He's our king because a good king comes and brings peace, justice, prosperity, hope, and human flourishing. See, our salvation should do the same as we too work for justice. That gives us great hope. Secondly, I think it gives us a life of ministry, a life of service. It's not your life for mine, it's my life for yours. That's why we're isolating ourselves, right? That's why we're, we're calling and checking in and asking our neighbors and our homebound parishioners, hey, I'm running out, do you need anything? Because it's my life for yours. J.I. Packer says it this way, Christians are, are those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of the one who became poor that others might become rich. They spend and they're spent, giving time, trouble, money, care, and concern to others, and not just people like them, in whatever way there seems to be a need. This gives us great hope to serve, too. Three, it means, my friends, that we have to stop defining the Christian life the way we want to and let Jesus Christ define the Christian life for us and obey him. I've had so many people say to me, Gene, I've tried Christianity. It doesn't work. Then I ask them, well, how's, how's your time in the, in the word? How's, how's your prayer life? How are you serving others? To a person, they haven't been doing any of those things. When you say, I try Christianity, it doesn't work, what you're meaning is there are some non-negotiable things in my life 
I want happiness. I want health. I want a grand portfolio. I want my kids to get into Harvard, whatever it might be. I want to be all that, and Christianity didn't give it to me, so I quit. What you're saying in saying that is, if I, I will obey God if. I will obey God based on the condition that he does his part, then I'll do mine, which is not obedience at all. That's just using God. Someone else is on the throne of your life. You're on the throne of your life. Something else is on the throne of your life, but Jesus isn't. And this passage calls us to let him be on the throne of our lives. My friends, it's the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life, but yet it's the most abundant, fulfilling thing you will ever do in your life by surrendering all of your life over to Jesus Christ. For he did the impossible for you. He went through hell for you upon the cross. All he's asking you to do is to follow him. And there will be times that's difficult. If he's kings, that means you'll serve him even if it's not working out all that much for you at times. You serve him when it doesn't seem to be paying off. We're called to obey him because he's king. And last and fourth, it means to trust in his reign. Our lives are full of great anxiety right now. Our lives are full of great worry. And that's what I mean by trusting his reign. Friends, he's sovereign. He's in control. Like I said at the beginning of the service, God is our refuge and strength. He's a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not be afraid. We will not be moved. That's what the trust we're calling to. Martin Luther's good friend, Philip Melanchthon, was a constant worry wart. And so Martin would look at his worrying friend and say, Oh, let Philip cease to rule the world. You can't worry and let God reign in your life. You can't worry and have great anxiety and let God reign. They just don't go together. My friends, we have a king, and he's good. And one day, there will be a new, created, new earth and heaven where his presence constantly will bring stability, peace, and abundance of his reign forever and ever and ever. You know that's coming. You know that. How do you know that? Every time you read a story of great heroism, like Return of the King, when all seems lost, Gondor is being overrun by the forces of Sauron, the evil wizard. It's terrible. All hope is about to be lost. And then you hear the horn of Rohan. 
and the forces of Rohan come over the ridge and they start to attack with the help of the army of the dead and they come and they overrun the forces and the kingdom of Gondor celebrates. Why? Because the true king is placed upon the throne. And just for a short glimpse, you go, yes. But you walk out of the movie theater and then all of a sudden someone bumps into you or T-bones your car and you recognize you're back in the real world again, right? We all want that. And Jesus is promising. We get a glimpse of it today in his kingdom and one day it will come to pass. You see, my friends, it's true. When we realize Jesus is the true king, it's better than just going to a movie for a pick-me-up. The good news of Jesus Christ infuses joy into your life that is contagious and becomes permanent in your very being. And as you grow in it, and as you mature in it, you'll be filled with the glowing joy of confidence and hope and strength for he is king. I invite you to join me in this walk. Because he gives us the strength to walk it by his Holy Spirit. It's not our strength, it's his. Let's pray for that strength. Almighty and most merciful Father, you give us this covenant in Jesus Christ that he's not simply our rescuer, our savior, but he's our everlasting king. He is in David's line. And he's making everything right in our lives right now. And that's a game changer. Lord, for all those who desire such, we give you our lives. We surrender it totally over to you. And we give you our lives to do with as you wish. We recognize that we are rebels to the core. We want to do lives our own way. We are sinners. And we pray, Lord, you would forgive us all of our sin. And we give you our lives. Give us your hope. Make us your humble and obedient servants. Comfort us to trust wholly and fill us with great expectation and joy through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.